One of the things that is very common among Christians is the tendency to complain about how bad our national government is and how corrupt it is. Certainly, there are many men and women in our government who give a lot of ammunition to people who want to do that. So, don't assume I'm defending corruption and negligence and irresponsibility. However, I have often wondered what it would have been like to have lived in the first century as a Christian in the Roman Empire. Many of the Caesars were openly homosexual. Corruption and vice were rampant. It was mandatory once a year for everyone living in the empire to say, Caesar is Lord. Can you imagine trying to live out your Christian life and your Christian duty towards government in that kind of environment? Yet that is exactly what believers faced living as a Christian in the first century under the Roman Empire. Not surprisingly, the New Testament writers address this topic frequently in their ministries. We see another example of that in our text this morning. Please turn with me in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2 if you're not already there. 1 Peter chapter 2, we continue our series through this powerful letter of God's Word. We come this morning to verses 13 through 17, so I invite you to follow along with me as I read these verses for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance or every institution of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice or wickedness, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Right in the middle of this text, in verse 15, Peter boldly makes the statement, for this is the will of God. A lot of Christians labor over the issue of God's will for their lives. Where should I go to school? What job should I take? Where should I live? Who should I marry? These are issues and many others that Christians wrestle with, wondering what is God's will for my life? But this is one area of life in which there is no question about God's will. God's will for us as Christians is to relate properly to those who are over us in government. Whenever Jesus and the apostles address the issue of our relationship to government officials, you will notice that they regularly use words like submit and honor and obey. Interestingly, those kinds of attitudes are often resisted by Americans. I think it would be accurate to say that for many Americans, there is a desire, there is actually a desire to be seen as rebellious and resistant and disrespectful of government officials. Those kinds of attitudes are often encouraged by talk radio and political TV shows. Since that is the case... 
It is very easy for Christians to fall into the trap of mimicking the same kind of attitudes and behavior as segments of culture around us. But, beloved, it's important for us to remember that we don't take our marching orders from society around us. We take our marching orders from what God has said in his word. And God is clear in his word that our attitude toward our government leaders is not to be an attitude of defiance and disrespect and resistance and whatever word you want to put in that same category. Now, you understand that it is okay within our system of government, the one that we live here in the the United States, it is okay within our system of government to have different views and to try to make political changes. There's nothing wrong with that. However, we must do so with the proper kinds of attitudes of respect and honor that God requires in His Word. This is something that God says over and over and over and over again in His Word. Let me show you a few examples by by way of introduction this morning, beginning from our Lord's ministry in Matthew chapter 17. Go back to the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 17. Beginning in verse 24. Now, when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? You see, there was a law that every male over the age of 20 had to pay an annual tax for the ongoing upkeep of the temple. So this group wondered if Jesus obeyed that law and fulfilled his obligation. That's what they asked. Verse 25. And he said, yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him. He knew what Peter was thinking. He knew Peter. He anticipated him saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter knew that Jesus had regularly paid this tax. And that's why he answered in the affirmative in the first part of this verse. And from what follows, it seems like Peter wondered why Jesus did pay this tax. But even if Peter wasn't wondering about it, Jesus decided to take this opportunity to teach Peter a very key lesson. Specifically, Jesus wanted to drive home to Peter the importance of two things. Number one, as a believer, you are still under the authority of human government and human institutions. And number two, as a believer, don't be so focused on your rights that you create an unnecessary offense for the gospel. The gospel is far more important than your rights. It was extremely important for Peter to learn these lessons. If you know much about Peter, then you know he had a strong personality. He was a fiery, aggressive sort of guy. He was a take-charge kind of person who often pushed the envelope. And those can be good traits for a leader to have as long as they are balanced by some other things. My guess is, knowing Peter's personality and tendencies, it would have been easy for him to have the attitude, hey, listen, we're in the kingdom business. You know, we're doing the Lord's work. Who cares about this law regarding the temple tax And who cares if those in charge 
are offended by us not paying the tax. If, that, if any of that was in Peter's thinking, Jesus wanted to address it right away. That's why Jesus asked Peter this question at the end of verse 25. He is forcing Peter to think through the issue in the right manner. By the way, a lot of Christians have the same kind of attitude. They have the perspective, listen, I don't care about man's laws and the rules of government or society. I'm a Christian. I belong to God. I'm above those things. And it doesn't matter to me who is offended by my actions. That kind of thinking is not uncommon among Christians. So it's very important for us to learn these lessons as well. These very same lessons Jesus decided to teach Peter on this occasion. Jesus began the teaching lesson with a question to Peter. Right there at the end of verse 25. From whom do the kings of the earth take custom or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Verse 26. Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. At this point, it might not be easy for us to see what Jesus was saying or where he was going with his comments, but I think Peter was beginning to get the point. What Jesus was saying was this. Since I am the Son of God, I am actually exempt from the responsibility to pay the temple tax. After all, the temple is my father's house. My father is in charge of it. He he is the Lord of it, and I'm the son, so I don't have to pay this tax. Jesus didn't have to pay this tax. However, he determined that it wasn't worth making an issue out of it because he didn't want to put up any kind of unnecessary barrier for the gospel. He didn't want to give any unnecessary offense. The key word in that statement is the word unnecessary. Jesus was willing to let his ministry and his message be offensive if the only alternative was to compromise God's truth. But he didn't make an issue out of things that didn't have to be an issue. So Jesus wanted to make sure that both he and Peter paid this tax. And think of this, beloved. Jesus' contribution went to the coffers of the high priest and the chief priests who would later put him to death. The money went into the treasury of the temple, which was so corrupt that Jesus had already cleansed it once and would do so again. And it was out of this temple treasury that 30 pieces of silver would be taken to bribe Judas to betray the Lord. Jesus knew all of that. And he still paid the tax without reservation. Verse 27, Jesus said, Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Some people might read this and have the thought, yeah, Sure, it was easy for Peter to give in and acquiesce to this rule because it didn't cost him anything. Sure it did. For one thing, fishing was Peter's work. You know, some of us do that maybe as a recreation. For Peter, it was his job. So Jesus sent Peter to acquire the required tax through his work. Second, if Jesus hadn't told Peter he had to pay this tax, 
Peter could have kept the coin as a bonus, but he had to give up the valuable coin to pay the required tax. And by the way, this was a valuable coin. It was equivalent to over two days' wages in that culture. So think about the average, uh, the average wage for a day, whatever you figure that is. Think about how much money that is, and double it, because it's two days. And that would be how much this one coin was worth. Jesus made sure Peter used that coin to obey the law to pay this tax. This lesson really stuck with Peter. And that's why he wrote what he did in his own letter, which we read just a moment ago. But before we look at it, jump over to Romans chapter 13 on our way toward 1 Peter. Stop off at one of Paul's statements on this subject, Romans chapter 13. Verse 1, Paul says, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. As we read this verse, I want to remind you that it's in the book of Romans. You say, well, that's expounding on the obvious. I realize that it ought to be obvious, but it's also very significant because the Roman Christians to whom Paul was writing were in the capital city of the Roman government, and the Roman government was very anti-Christian. Paul knew that. The people receiving this letter were well aware of that. But how does Paul open this section? He says, be subject. Therefore, it's not a valid excuse for disobedience to say that we can disobey because our government is corrupt. Through the years, I've heard Christians try to use that. They say something like this. Because our government has left its Christian heritage and left its Christian Judeo-Christian foundations, we don't have to be submissive to the government any longer. Or, because our government isn't following the Constitution anymore, we don't have to be submissive to the government any longer. Do you think Paul would have bought that reasoning? Not a chance, in light of what he writes here. In fact... He even says that the government has been appointed by God. What does that mean? He certainly doesn't mean that every government official is godly. What he is saying is government is a divine institution. It is a God-ordained institution. That doesn't mean that every government is all that it should be, but the institution of government is God-ordained. Government is an instrument in the hand of God to preserve the world from chaos. I'll never forget talking with a Christian in another culture on one occasion. He was actually American, but living in another culture. And he lived in a time when this particular country had no government. It was total anarchy. It was then taken over by a very corrupt government. He said to me, I'll never forget this, Brian, let me assure you that having a terrible government is way better than having no government. Living in anarchy, where anybody can do anything they want to do, that's a very fearful way to try to live life. Government is an instrument in the hand of God to preserve the world from chaos. So Paul writes in verse 2, he says, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. 
Dr. Stifler explained it this way, quote, The cruel abuses in government do not invalidate their divine charter any more than the abuses of marriage rob it of its sacredness. Man abuses all God's gifts, end quote. He's right. Man abuses all of God's gifts. So Paul is saying here in verse 2, since government is of God, from God, if you disobey the government, you are disobeying God and you are putting yourself in the position of receiving punishment. If you refuse to to submit yourself to the government, then you are refusing to submit to God. And the reverse is true. When we obey the government, we shouldn't see it as merely obeying the government. We should see it as obeying the will of God of God. That raises our actions to a far higher level. It raises our motivation to a far higher level. Verse 3, Paul says, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. It is, it is stunning that Paul writes these words in the book of Romans. But he says, even in his day, government existed for the punishment of evil. Granted, governments never do this perfectly, and they make mistakes. Sometimes they even purposely let evil slide by. Sometimes they even actually uh, afflict people with evil. So there are clearly exceptions to this general rule of thumb. Even Paul himself experienced wrong treatment from government officials. But there's no denying the fact that the general purpose of government is to deter evil. So if we refuse to submit to the government and we get punished for doing so, then we deserve the punishment, says the Holy Spirit in this this section. Verse 4, he says, For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. The phrase, he does not bear the sword in vain, is a reference to the fact that government can use force and even capital punishment to prevent anarchy and the tyranny of evil in society. So if you do evil, Paul says, then you ought to fear the consequences because the government has a right to use force to make you submit. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was about to be arrested unlawfully now, unjustly, Peter took out his sword to defend the Lord. But Jesus told him to put away his sword because, quote, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. In other words, Jesus was saying, even if the cause is noble, when you resist the government, it has the right to take your life. That's what Paul is saying here. Verse 5, Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. We should obey the laws of the land, not only because of the fear of consequences, but also so we will have a clear conscience. Even if we never get caught breaking the law, God knows, and so does our conscience. So for the sake of conscience, we should obey God by obeying the law. But not only should we submit ourselves to the government by obedience, we should also submit ourselves by paying taxes. Paul adds that one in verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers. Again, a second time he says that. It's remarkable that he would make this kind of statement. Of the Roman government. 
They are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Through the years, many times I've heard Christians say something along the lines of, well, I don't think God wants me to pay my taxes because of the way our government is using the money to do evil. Beloved, what do you think the Roman government did with the tax money of Paul's day? The Roman government used the tax money of Paul's day to support pagan temples and emperor worship. Yet the command is clear. Pay your taxes. It is literally astonishing how many Christians cheat on their taxes and try to do so with a clear conscience. Refusing to pay taxes or cheating on taxes is a crime against the government and it is a sin against God. Now again, in our culture, we are allowed to use tax deductions, tax write-offs. A Christian, as a good steward, should take advantage of everything he can to do that. Just as long as it's honest. Just as long as it's right. Verse 7, Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom uh, honor. You see, we may not appreciate the politics of the people holding office over us, and we may deplore their personal lives, but this doesn't excuse us from the responsibility to pay our taxes and to show respect and honor to government officials. We should be very careful about the way we express disapproval and the way we voice dissent. We should always show respect and honor. We can disagree. We can oppose. We can, we can resist in the, in the lawful way. But we should always show respect and honor. On your way to our text in 1 Peter, stop off at one other letter, Titus. First and 2 Timothy, and then Titus. Just before Philemon in Hebrews. Titus chapter 3. The Holy Spirit of God directed Paul to write similar words as what he wrote in Romans. Look at Titus chapter 3 verse 1. It says, remind them. This is Paul telling Titus as a pastor what he should tell the congregation. He is saying, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one. You see, beloved, this is, this is the consistent testimony of Scripture. Verse 2, Paul says to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. That is, instead of being insubordinate and rebellious, and argumentative, instead of having that kind of character, we are to be peaceable, gentle, and humble. Those are the kinds of virtues that will impact people in a corrupt society. After all, our goal is to see people in this society, whether they're involved in government or not involved in government, our ultimate goal as believers is to see people experience the same internal change we experienced when we received God's salvation. That's what has made the difference in our lives. So Paul says, realize you're not going to win anyone to Christ by being someone who is insubordinate, someone who is rebellious, someone who is argumentative. So with all this as background, let's briefly consider Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 2. 
And I say briefly because Peter says some of the very same things a a little bit different way, uh, but he's basically going to reiterate what Jesus taught him in Matthew's gospel and what Paul taught in Romans and in Titus. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme. Now, don't miss the phrase, for the Lord's sake. In other words, we do this as believers because we represent the Lord. And we want to do everything we can in life to represent Him. That's why He has left us here on this earth, to represent Him. That's the key to the whole thing, beloved. We do what we do and don't do what we don't do for the Lord's sake. It's not all about us. It's not all about our preferences. It's not all about our comfort. It's not all about our rights. It's about our testimony for the Lord and representing Him. That's what it's really about. We are to live our lives by submitting to every ordinance of man or every authority for the Lord's sake. The obvious exception to this, as we see in Acts 4 and 5, is if human government commanded us to do something that is in direct disobedience to God's word. If the government said we can't read our Bibles, then we disobey. If the government said we can't pray, then we disobey. If the government said we can't gather for worship, then we disobey. If the government said we can't share the change Christ has made in our lives, then we disobey. But even then, we must be willing to accept the consequences that result. So in verse 14, Peter says, Or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. In the previous verse, Peter mentioned the king. Here he mentions governors. His point is that our obligation to submit applies to national laws, state laws, city laws, all levels of human government. Government is in place to punish evil and reward good. No government does that perfectly. Some governments do it better than others. And the government in place, when Peter wrote these words, left a lot to be desired. But that doesn't negate our biblical responsibility. That's why Peter said in verse 14 that we do this for the Lord's sake. And he says in verse 15... For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Don't miss the first phrase of that verse. For this is the will of God. In case we're still trying to get around this responsibility and justify it in some way, Peter makes it clear that this is God's will for his people. God's will for us as his people is to be model citizens in society. The last thing Christians should be known for is rebellion, resistance, disrespect toward others, and a lack of submission to authorities. That would be a terrible representation of our Lord. We are to live life in such a way that we don't give unbelievers ammunition to fire at the name of Christ. That's what Peter means by the last phrase of verse 15, where he says that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish 
men. Foolish men and women who are resisting the Lord are always looking for things to throw up as an objection to the gospel. Surely you've seen this. Some unbelievers are looking for any excuse they can find to reject the claims of Christ. And beloved, we give them that excuse when we refuse to submit to the authority of human government and human institutions. When we're known as lawbreakers, rebellious. We give them that excuse when we don't place our representing of Christ above all else. So pause for just a moment here before we go on and take a look at your life. Do you think your comfort or convenience or preferences or rights are more important than your witness for Christ? Do you think about your testimony for Christ above all else, above everything else in life? That's the question Peter is forcing us to consider. It's not the way Peter would have seen life when Jesus first called him. But in time, as Jesus trained him, nurtured him, taught him, it became his perspective. So he writes in verse 16, As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice or wickedness, but as bondservants of God. It is true that we are free in Christ. That's what Peter says here. The New Testament makes it clear we are now, since Jesus has fulfilled the law by his life, fulfilled the law by his death, we are free from the law. We're under the new covenant, not the old covenant. So we are free in Christ. But Peter says here we should never use that freedom as a cover-up for things that are not pleasing to God. In other words, it is wrong when Christians say things like this. I'm a Christian, and therefore I answer to Christ and Christ alone. I don't answer to any man. People can't tell me what to do, only the Lord. That may sound really spiritual, but it's actually just a cover-up for wrong. Yes, we are free in Christ. And yes, He is our ultimate master. But that does not release us from the responsibility to submit to people who are in, who are in authority here on this earth. So Peter is saying here in this text, don't give the Lord a bad reputation by saying that you aren't accountable to anyone, you aren't answerable to anyone, you don't have to submit to anyone. That's bad theology, and it's a bad testimony. Being a bondservant of God, as Peter mentions at the end of this verse, involves obeying human authorities in our lives. Sounds ironic, doesn't it? Almost contradictory. Being a bondservant of God involves obeying human authorities in our lives. So Peter writes in verse 17, Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. These rapid-fire exhortations encapsulate what Peter wants us to understand on this issue. We should honor or show respect to all people. That's the first thing he says. Honor all. Show respect to all people. Some Christians need to learn and understand that there's no virtue being caustic and abrasive in the way we relate to unbelievers. Nothing gained by that. Some Christians have so much disdain 
instead of compassion for unbelievers, and it comes out in a lack of respect or proper honor. The second phrase here is love the brotherhood. We are to respect all people, as Peter said in the first phrase, but there is a special love that we have for one another in the family of God. We're to love the brotherhood of believers. The third phrase is fear God. We are to honor and submit to human authority figures, but there is a special fear that is for God alone, a unique fear that is for God alone. This is not talking about a fear that causes us to run from God. We are to to reverence Him and be in awe of Him. That reverential awe is reserved for Him alone. Then the last phrase of the verse sums up what Peter has been saying in this paragraph. He says, honor the king. We may not like or agree with the man in the position, but we still honor the man because of his position. Those of us here, or those here in in, in our midst who have a military background, understand this principle. You salute the man in the position, even if you don't like the man in the position. So this is what the Apostle Peter says to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just as he said it to the believers under the Roman Empire. During a time when Rome was especially hostile toward Christians, a later church father named Tertullian wrote this, quote, Without ceasing, for all our emperors we offer prayer. We pray for life prolonged, for security to the empire, for protection to the imperial house, for brave armies, a faithful senate, a virtuous people, the world at rest, whatever as man or Caesar and emperor would wish, end quote. Justin Martyr, a second-century theologian and church father, wrote a letter to the Roman emperor Antoninus Pius, and here's what he wrote in this letter. Quote, Everywhere we Christians, more readily than all men, endeavor to pay to those appointed by you the taxes, both ordinary and extraordinary, as we have been taught by Jesus. To God alone we render worship. But in other things we gladly serve you, acknowledging you as kings and rulers of men, and praying that with your kingly power you be found to possess also sound judgment. End quote. Tertullian said that the Christians in his day prayed for their leaders. Justin Martyr said that the believers of his day prayed for their leaders. What kind of things did they pray? The following prayer is one that came from a Christian in Rome. And it was just after the Christians had experienced malice and hostility from Domitian, the Roman leader. Keep that in mind as I read this prayer. Here's the prayer of a Christian in the Roman Empire to the Father, to God. Guide our steps to walk in holiness and righteousness and singleness of heart and to do those things that are good and acceptable in your sight and in the sight of our rulers. Yes, Lord, cause your face to shine upon us in peace for our good, that we may be sheltered by your mighty hand and delivered from every sin by your outstretched arm. Deliver us from those who hate us wrongfully. Give concord and peace to us and to all who dwell on earth as you did to our fathers when they called on you in faith and truth with holiness, while we render obedience to your almighty and most excellent name and to our earthly rulers and governors. 
You, O Lord and Master, have given them the power of sovereignty through your excellent and unspeakable might, that we, knowing the glory and honor which you have given them, may submit ourselves to them in nothing resisting your will. Grant them, therefore, O Lord, health and peace, concord and stability, that they may, without failure, administer the government which you committed to them. For you, O heavenly Master, King of the ages, dost give to the sons of men glory and honor and power over all things that are in the earth. Do thou, O Lord, direct their counsel according to what is good and acceptable in your sight, that they, administering in peace and gentleness with godliness the power which you have committed to them, may obtain your favor. End quote. That was a prayer of an average Christian for his leaders in the vile Roman Empire. Beloved, that should be the kind of prayer we offer to the Lord for our government leaders. But for many of us, it's easier to hate our government leaders than it is to pray for them. Way easier to hate them than pray for them. Peter didn't pray when Jesus asked him to in the Garden of Gethsemane. But when the soldiers came, Peter took out his sword and began fighting. Unfortunately, that's the way many of us are. We don't pray, but we hate and fight. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 2 as we close. Go back to the left to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul writing to Timothy who was pastoring in Ephesus, telling him how he should instruct the congregation there in Ephesus. And notice what he says, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now, Paul, of whom are you referring? All men. I mean, surely there's some, there's some limitations here. Notice what he says, For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In verse 1, we are exhorted to pray. Verse 2 specifically says praying for kings, government leaders, officials. Why should we pray? Verse 4 tells us because God desires all men to be saved. You mean God desires a wicked president to be saved? That's right. You mean God desires a corrupt senator or congressman to be saved? That's right. So pray. Don't get angry and fight. Don't doubt that God is able to save our government leaders. He is able. So pray. 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 Let's bow together. Father, we need to hear this message from your word. We need to hear it as your people and to take it seriously. And we are thankful that we live in a country where we are able to be a part of the process of change, 
We were able to vote. We were able to talk with other people. We were able to support candidates. We were able to do all of those things, and there's nothing wrong with that from your word. But it's so easy for us to step over the line to where we stop doing things the right way, a way that honors you. And we, we sort of do things the way Peter did in the garden, where he decided he was going to take out his sword and begin fighting. And, of course, we know how your son, the Lord Jesus, rebuked him for that action, told him to put away his sword. So may we learn, may we learn very well from Peter's own experience. It's no wonder to us that he wrote the words he wrote there in 1 Peter chapter 2, having experienced what he experienced in Jesus' ministry and in, even in the end of his life in ministry and then in his years of service and ministry in the days ahead. So help us to learn from these Holy Spirit-inspired instructions that we have seen this morning, whether from the lips of Jesus in Matthew 17, the pen of Paul in Romans, or in Titus, or 1 Timothy, or the pen of Peter. May we hear and understand, and may we place our representing Christ above everything else in our lives. First and foremost, as your people, May our goal be, our aim be, our desire be to represent Christ to this lost and dying world around us. And so in closing, we pray for anyone who is here with us this morning, maybe someone who came for the first time or is visiting or whatever the case may be, maybe someone who's been here many, many times but does not know Christ, your Son, personally as Lord and Savior. May your Holy Spirit work that radical change within where true and lasting change takes place. And may you be pleased to draw that person to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.